Welcome to Business Conversations with your host, business strategist, Clive Enever. Clive is joined by expert guests as they talk business behind the scenes to give you the tools and insights to support your growth, security and serenity as you strive for your success. Welcome to another episode of Business Conversations with Clive Enever. I am Clive Enever, business strategist, and we're having a conversation with Stephen Brown about what is franchising. And we're going to talk about franchising for the franchisor and franchising for the franchisee. Stephen Brown is a highly experienced lawyer with an extensive knowledge in all aspects of business and commercial law. He has an intimate knowledge of the corporation's law and the Australian Securities Exchange business and listing rules. He's involved in corporate structuring, compliance, corporate takeovers, company floats, the preparation of prospectuses, employee share schemes, and advising on director's duties, and insolvency and securities law practice. Hello, Stephen, and welcome. Hello, Clive. It's good to have you here. Where have we found you geographically? I am currently in Sydney. I am currently, and this will date webinars, but I'm in part of the COVID lockdown of Sydney. Not in one of the hotspots, thank God, but part of the, the lockdown nonetheless. And as of a few minutes ago, I believe we're locked in for another four weeks. Oh, exciting times. And here am I in Victoria, where we've just come out of lockdown number five. And apparently, I heard on a news report earlier that being referred to as lockdown light. Lockdown light. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting times. But nonetheless... <laughs> Business still goes on, Stephen, and a fairly large part of business over the last few decades has been franchising. It's seen by some as a wonderful thing, and it provides lots of people the opportunity to get into business with a whole bunch of stuff already decided for them. So is there a simple way to describe franchising? Yes. The the short answer, very unlawyer-like, but there is a short, simple answer to that question, Clive. And the answer is that franchising is a derivative of a French word, and it's a French word to license. And so franchising is a form of licensing, and it's about licensing a system of business that allows a successful form of business to be copied and replicated numerous times. So, you know, if someone's done it well once, then it can be copied provided the people stick to the formula and don't deviate from it greatly. And there are some sort of rules and issues about that. But franchising is essentially the licensing of a business system and know-how. And that can be from very broad brush areas to very, very detailed. So the extreme of the most most detailed forms are McDonald's, KFC, those types of outlets, which are very detailed. Then you have the less structured, which within Australia covers things such as service stations and car dealerships. So new car dealerships with under Australian law, under the current law anyway, are franchises. There was a time when they weren't, but they are now covered by the very broad definition of what a franchise is. You are now. I, for example, would never have thought of a car dealership as being an actual franchise, but it covers a multitude of things. And from what you said there, it's really, I've thought up the 
the processes, procedures, etc., that actually make this business work, I can then offer that as a franchise to other people. Yes, absolutely. It's anything where the within Australia under Australian franchising law, and Australian franchising law is governed by the Competition Consumer Act 2010, and there are regulations that are promulgated under that particular act. And the regulations state that a franchise is anything where a trademark is licensed to be used and there is or is not a system of work. So the licensing of a trademark is the first trigger to inquire as to whether you're taking up a franchise. And you don't actually even have to pay money to be a franchise. I was talking to a client in Brisbane recently and they saw me after they'd already done this, but they've taken up a business of selling gluten-free donuts. And they go from market to market and they do pop-up stores in shopping centers. And they were talking to me about some issues they were having. And they said to me, oh, look, we've got this arrangement and we have a license. I said, oh, that's good. And I said, do you use a particular trademark? Oh, yeah, we use a trademark. And do you use a formula for your a recipe for the donuts, yes, we use that. And do they have sort of a bit of a pattern how you describe and sell your donuts? Oh, yes. So there's a system and know-how behind all this. Yeah, yeah. I said, you know, you've got a franchise. And I said, oh, no, no. The people that we've paid this $36,000 to said it was a license. I said, well, it is. Franchise is just a French word for license. And under Australian law, where you've got a system of work, you've got an associated trademark, and you are paying money, and you're also paying ongoing money because they pay ongoing payments for the raw materials to make the donuts. That's a franchise system. And without the license or the franchise or complying with the franchising code, you're not bound by this document. Now, if you want to be bound, that's fine. Because if you're getting some benefit out of it, which they believe they were, then that's fine. But they can't hold you to it because it's not enforceable by the license or. We had an interesting discussion about that, and I think they, they're deciding to have their cake and eat it, which is one of the rare circumstances where you can, because they're able to maintain their license with their franchise all, knowing that if there's ever a problem, they can simply walk away and can't be held to the contract. Ah, this is very interesting. So we've had a look at the broad idea of what a franchise is shall we look to where will we look first let's just look to the franchise or so i've i've come up with a ubit idea it might be making donuts but whatever it is i've i've put the necessary bits and pieces in place what's required Stephen, as a franchise or the the legal requirements that you have a prior disclosure document and that document sets out who you are who the franchise or is if it's a company, who are the individuals behind that company? What skills and experience have they had in the franchising business? What skills and experience do they have in business in general? The outline of the term of the franchise, uh, how long is the term for? Three years with two, three-year options, whatever that is. Are there requirements to buy ongoing goods or services from the franchisor? Is there a requirement to pay fees by way of licensing or royalties, which are they sometimes known as, are marketing contributions. Do you have to take a lease from 
the franchisor. So there, one, the franchisor needs to have a prior disclosure document. Now that prior disclosure document is based upon <laughs> the franchise or has to work out what type of franchise they're wanting to license. So they ought to, for their own protection, have a trademark, McDonald's, KFC, whatever, so that when they license it, they can keep uniformity throughout the entire network. There should be procedures manual. When should stores open? How is cleaning to be undertaken? How are machines to be maintained? It can go down to the level of how you welcome customers into your store. Do you want fries with that? And they're all part of the standard operating procedures of the franchisor. So before you're going out franchising, you've got to have that in place. This is now a personal view of mine. There's no legal prohibition on a franchisor having one store then franchising out another store. However, I find that that can be very dangerous because within the franchising code, where a franchisor makes future predictions about revenue, the onus of proof falls upon them to justify how they came up with making those pronouncements rather than the franchisee being by beware. And that can be very onerous because if you've never operated a business in a different location, it just may not work there. Uh, a franchise that I, a client was involved with was making a cross between, they were South American, South American cronuts and they were a cross between a donut and a croissant. And this particular person went overseas. They'd made a lot of money in finance and mortgage broking, sold their business, got a lot of cash, went on a six-month sabbatical with their family, discovered these fabulous things, decided that they could do it here in Australia, worked it out, went out and bought, took a lease on very expensive premises in Cantor York Street in the middle of the Sydney CBD and started trying to sell these things. And because they were new and novel, the initial revenue was fabulous. Then they decided they'd franchise it. So they went and got some other things and went out to franchise and got some people because based upon the revenue of this one store, then they started franchising in other areas. And the problem was that the market price for Sydney CBD was acceptable. But when they went out to suburbs, the price just didn't fly. Moreover, their particular method was that they simply sold this cronut, no drinks, no coffee, zip. So most people in, again, the suburbs wanted a place for relax, sit down, have a bit of a chat, have a nibble and something to drink, but it wasn't part of the system. The whole system fell apart and the franchisor ended up getting sued for misleading and deceptive conduct because they based the revenue predictions on the Sydney store and the court held, well, yeah, that, that was the Sydney store but you'd never done it in the suburbs. How would you know what the suburbs are like if you haven't done it? So I have a strong view if you're a new franchisor, you should set your franchise outlets up. You should run them for 12 to 18 months, get real figures based upon you knowing what you're doing. And if they're not going to work for you, they're certainly not going to work for someone who's following your system. So get it to work. Then based upon it working, then you can use the real figures to induce other people to buy. 
the franchise. So I think from memory, Stephen, that I've seen uh, several of those over the last 12 months in Australia, that uh, you know, people have been selling things that they thought might happen mm. rather than, as you say, getting real figures and then having a real business to sell. Yeah, um, and, and that's what they, they're, so you know, as a franchisor, you've got to look at what is it you're really selling? Have you got your system in place to protect yourself? Will the system be re able to be replicated? So, you know, what, what you need to do and what I counsel franchisors on doing if you want to do it is go to an outlet, set it up, then get someone who might be interested and have them take over with the, your guidance to make sure it works because you've got to be able to train these people. Most franchises have training. Well, if, if you actually haven't trained anyone, you're not going to be able to set up your training procedures anyway. So that is likely to fail. So there's all of these practical issues which franchisors need to get their heads around. But the next practical issue I think a franchisor needs to get the, the head around is that where are they wanting to make their money? Now, what I mean by that is a company called, it was a franchise system again that I was involved with many years ago called West Tax. And it was a copying of H&R Block and IT income tax professionals at, at the time. And there was some different twists to it, but essentially it was a storefront for people to come and do their taxes. And the owners were supposed to be insurance brokers, and they would then use that as leads to do business insurance, superannuation, and the like. Now, what happened in that particular thing, it was a good model, but the owners got greedy because what started happening is that they started making money and saw money coming in from simply the sale of the franchise outlets. And so rather than focusing on the long-term revenue stream that they would generate, thereby selling a profitable business, they were looking at the short term of, wow, we're selling this huge franchise, we're getting this cash coming in, and they started then using that cash. And they needed that cash then to support their business. So they then needed to sell more and more franchise, which meant they were cannibalizing their subsisting franchise network because they were trying to fit more franchises in between the locations that they had seen as the market. And so you might have somewhere in Melbourne and then you might have one in Bendigo and then the initial plan was not to have anywhere in between and so the, the two of them would have these areas and all of a sudden they started putting two or three franchises in between the Melbourne and Bendigo areas, thereby reducing the market, thereby reducing the profitability of all their franchisees. And, and that ultimately went into disarray and everyone again got sued for misleading and deceptive conduct. So franchisors really need to appreciate that it's a long-term benefit for them, for the franchisor to succeed, the franchisees have to succeed. Clive, it's a bit like a politician. In order for a politician to stay in politics, they need to help their constituents. Franchisees are the constituents of the franchisor and they need to deal with them and make sure they are successful. A good franchise outlet and that has worked very well is Jim's Mowing. And uh, of course, uh, one of the things that's becoming apparent from your explanation of how these things work 
is that planning is super important to plan it right through so that you're not making decisions on the fly. If we do our planning correctly, we should know that there will be X revenue coming in from the sale of the franchise. (laughs) Then we know that there, there is X revenue coming in from the ongoing revenue stream and we make a choice which one we want to work with rather than, oh, look at all this money. Golly, we better have a good time. (laughs) <laughs> and, and what you can then do once you make that, like for example, um, KFC and McDonald's, their, their model has has expanded because they will often now buy the real estate, and so they will control the real estate, which they will then lease to their franchisees. So they're making money not only from the license fees, the royalties, but they're also getting it from the lease, and they're also getting it from the sale of the buns and, and that because there's a a marker. So they're skimming money off everywhere, but they are very successful types of franchises. And as a franchisor, you need to work out what type of franchise you want. For instance, um, Baker's Delight, they have a twofold model. When they initially go into an area, they want to secure the premises because they don't want the franchisee at the expiration of the franchise term, if they don't renew, to maintain the location as a bread shop, but under a different name. So in order to secure the location, the franchisor has to have on its books that contingent liability of the lease for the particular premises. So KFC, McDonald's, most of the big ones will do that. A lot of startup franchisors don't have the financial capacity to take on multiple leases. Therefore, they let the franchisee do it, which then puts them into a difficult situation if, one, the franchisor doesn't renew, or two, if the franchisee doesn't renew. So as a franchisor, you, you, that's another issue that you need to, to have, a, have a regard to as part of your planning. Yes, so the planning you get is uh, the important thing because if you get your planning right, you know what's involved. You can see, hang on, we're going to be up for this much money. Have we got that much money? No, perhaps we look at something different. If we don't do it that way, what risk comes back to us then? And as you just pointed out, if if we as a franchisor can't take control of the property, we risk losing a really good location. Very true. Mm. And and you've got to therefore look, look at those things and plan for them. The last thing in a discussion like this that I think is crucial for a franchisor or someone considering being a franchisor to appreciate is that they need to spend money on doing psychoanalysis of their prospective franchisees, not to find out if they are paranoid schizophrenics or if they are psychopaths, although, you know, a lot of CEOs apparently are supposed to be psychopaths and so you may think that's a good thing. But quite the reverse, what psychological studies have proven is that the most successful franchisees are military, ex-military people and public servants. And the studies reveal that that is so because both of those classes of person know about following rules, but having sufficient personal initiative to work within the rules without trying to break them. Whereas an entrepreneurial person, the, the franchisor, doesn't want to replicate themselves in franchises because the entrepreneurial person will want to try new things. And by trying new things, they will possibly break the system. They may well improve it, 
but the franchise or doesn't care about necessarily that. Um, where you can get improvements, are, for example, in Australia, the Mac Cafe. Australia was the first place to have the cafe element put into the McDonald's stores. And now it's a worldwide phenomenon. But it was because of one of the franchisees suggesting it to the franchisor who would allow them to test it. But within the system, they worked within the rules. So having psychological testing is a crucial element. And you therefore have to take time to get the right person, especially for your first 10 franchisees. Because if, you ha- if they're not right, your system's going to fail. And you don't want to be fighting with 10 entrepreneurial people or trying to put their 10 cents worth in as to how the system can improve. Because you're selling your system as being the bee's knees, not wanting to improve it. If you want to improve it, you, you w- would have done so before you actually started franchising. So sort of recapping in reverse order, psychological testing, knowing what franchise model you've got. Don't cannibalise your franchise system have planning, ensure that your systems are in order, the business systems, and have a trademark. And planning, planning, planning. Planning, 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 yep. yep. <laughs> and <laughs> it is amazing that uh, of all the, the things you've spoken of, that one big golden archer's place actually shows us all the rules because they started out doing a particular thing. They recognized the way to improve it. They took the steps to improve it. They listened to their people. When when the person people came up with a good idea, they trialed it, they proved it. And as you said, it's now a worldwide thing. But uh, here we are in Oz once again, making the truth to that story of the mother of invention. It's us. <laughs> That's franchise oars angle from a franchise situation what about the people who want to be the franchise e now we've already discovered of course that if you can work within rules that's a pretty good start um if you want to be a, the franchisee is, is someone who may want to learn about business to um, use a risk a, a less riskier method of earning an income and and discovering how to operate a business that you can possibly, there are some entrepreneurial people who may want to use it as a training ground. And that's fine. As long as you appreciate that you're buying into the franchisees to learn and not to try to change that franchise and to get the knowledge and skill to possibly replicate it elsewhere, not a problem. Uh, so I, I don't say to an entrepreneurial person, don't buy one, but appreciate that you may not make the same returns as you do if you're doing it yourself. So Think of that. Um, follow the rules. If you've got a good idea, you've got to work with the franchisor. Ensure you have the product disclosure document. The, you must have that document seven days before you sign up on the franchise. Make sure that the franchise agreement mirrors the terms and conditions in the prior disclosure document. I encourage your franchisees, prospective franchisees, to contact old franchisees and current franchisees whose names will be in the prior disclosure document. I also encourage them to ask the people that they talk to whether they know of anyone else who might not be on the list to have a chat to as well because um, that's an important thing to, to do, to talk to people that haven't been recommended to talk to. Have a look at any court cases that the franchise all may have been involved with and find out who the um, counterparties were and have a chat with them, call them and find out. Then have your accountants go through the figures, especially if there's been 
pronouncements of what you're likely to return. So my recommendation as a franchisee is best to buy into an existing outlet, not do one from scratch, because if you're doing one from scratch and you've never done it before, you're not really going to know whether that idea will work in that market or not. You may think it's the best thing, but it just may not work. If you're setting up your own business, you're always taking a punt. If you're setting up a franchise, then you're taking not only a punt on your business acumen, but that the model will in fact work in a location where it's never been tried before. And I think that's dangerous. Absolutely. And uh, at the risk of frightening a few people away from getting into business, which we don't want to do, other than to encourage people to plan, 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 prove, prove, prove that things will actually work. Whilst I don't know the, the figures on uh, specifically for franchise situations, in Australia, 65% of businesses fail within the first three years. Mm. So if we have a look at franchise, a franchise position, we need to keep that in mind because if we're starting it, it's probably not all that much different, except we've got the method worked out somewhere else. We might very well be in the wrong place. We might be the wrong people. All of those things deserve to be looked at. And as you say, talk to other people, ask them, how's it gone for you? Are you still there? Absolutely. It's very important to to work it out. But look, they're very, very successful franchise. Again, as long as you stick with the rules. Now, I'm not getting any kickback or any rebates or any of these franchisors that I'm talking about. In fact, you know, there are some negatives that I find with Jim's Mowing system. The Jim's Mowing gives you an area and you are to build it up. Once, though, you reach a particular number of clients, you can no longer take on any more. These new clients have to be hived off to another franchisee. Now, the explanation is that Jim's mowing has worked out that you, an individual, cannot market or service adequately any more than this number of people. Therefore, your your fees, therefore, are going to be capped. Your revenue from a Jim's mowing won't increase. Now, there are reasons that if you can maintain that by putting staff on, they will let you keep the additional clients. But if you're not going to put the staff on and thereby taking on additional headaches, then you've got to send them off. And therefore, you'll you only ever have a level of income capped at the maximum number of people you can service. Now, that's not necessarily the same with a McDonald's or something like that because you may be able to get it in. But again, they're, they're drawing their market area it is always going to be limited. And so you're never really going to be able to get more than what the target market will allow you to, to generate. So it, it's always to bear that in mind. Which again comes back to planning, 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 knowing what it is that one wants to achieve. And in knowing what one wants to achieve, is this the right vehicle? Because Mm -hmm. if you want more than what the vehicle will deliver, perhaps you better get another vehicle. But as a concept, of course, franchising is there. As as you said earlier, it provides you with the means by which you can deliver an outcome, Mm. provided, of course, it's in the right place and you're the right person. That's right. (laughs) What else do we need to know when we're looking at Okay, we're going to, we want to start a business. 
perhaps we'll use the franchise model. We'll go in as a franchisee. You've got to look at where the advertising revenue is going. A lot of franchises will require you to pay X percent for a license fee, your franchise fee, uh, based upon turnover or profitability. Uh, you should look at probably paying on profit rather than turnover. Because if you're paying on turnover, that may be eating into your profit. Uh, so be, be wary of that. Other, a lot of other franchises, in addition, have a marketing budget that you've got to pay for. And therefore, you need to investigate where that marketing budget's going. Is the franchisor paying their sister-in-law or brother-in-law to do the marketing? And therefore, is a lot of your hard-earned advertising dollar being used to support the franchisor's family? as opposed to being put to increasing the value of the network. So that's important. Having an appreciation of who your, your other franchisees are because you are in a collaborative group. You know, there's no point in a franchisee in Perth supplying poor quality goods or services for whatever the franchise is because you may find that someone goes to that franchise for the first time in Perth and has such a bad experience, I'll never go to anyone else again. And therefore, what you do in your store not only benefits and helps you, but helps the entire network. And you have to appreciate that. If you don't have that appreciation and you're not willing to share along those lines, then don't be a franchisee. If you can't follow rules, as we've said previously, don't be a franchisee. If you want to learn about franchising, then becoming a franchisee and following the rules is an excellent way of doing it at, at some cost. But as you point out, Clive, you do not make money in business without taking a risk. Therefore, you have to take risky decisions to earn an income. It's, it's not going to happen otherwise. Every business decision is a risk. Even if you're an, an employee, you risk being fired. So again, there's no guarantee that you're going to make any money, even just being an employee. So every economic decision has a degree of risk to it, some being more risky than others. But generally, the theory is the higher the risk, the higher the expected return. Yeah, and the shorter the time it takes to find out mm. as a rule, yeah. <laughs> which is handy regardless of which way it goes. Again, we, we're coming back to planning, planning, planning. And of course, if anybody out there is thinking about getting into a franchise, Stephen's obviously a man. He knows about this. We'll talk soon about how to get in contact with Stephen. But a lot of people in business, I've noticed through the years, Stephen, take their time about figuring out whether or not you should actually set things up on a legal footing. I know this is stepping a little bit away from franchising. We'll come back to it shortly. When should a person do that? Is this a little bit like the... When should I plant a tree? Yeah. Whenever you're thinking about doing something, it is best to talk to a lawyer sooner rather than later because you don't know what you don't know. And the law, the laws about rules being applied and they aren't necessarily logical extrapolations of what is or is not acceptable. An example that I use with clients is that there are two games. One's named soccer. And another one's called football. And I'm not going to get the debate of, of that soccer being football, but we all know that soccer's the round ball. Now, in that game, it's played on an oval, square rectangular area, and there's a number of people on two teams, 
And the idea is to score points. Ten people on one team can't touch the ball and then one the goalie can. Similar game or similar principle is that of football, whether it's league or, or union, idea is to score points on a rectangular field. Indeed, a rectangular field of the same dimensions as a soccer field. But in those games, each team, every player in the team can touch the ball. What's the difference? There's no logical reason why there are those two positions. The answer is simply they are the rules. And when playing soccer, you abide by that rule. When playing football, you have to abide by that rule. Consequently, as business people, you need to know what game you are playing to understand the rules. We were having a chat, and we won't mention any names of any people, but a particular a person that you know is looking at doing a particular legal arrangement in Queensland. Now, what they're proposing on doing is quite legal. However, because of the particular way they wish to conduct the business, it's not able to be leased. They will have to have border or lodger agreements. Once they do that, they go under the Queensland Residential Tenancy Law. Even though they're not tenants in the sense of a lessee, they are tenants in the sense of a border or lodger using premises in a shared manner. Under that Act, there are particular forms of border and lodger agreement which must be adhered to. So you have to use what the Act specifies. Moreover, if you're going to be having borders or lodgers who are NDIS participants, and I don't know the answer, but I know in New South Wales, where two or more NDIS participants are the borders or lodgers using shared accommodation, the premises have to be registered under the Youth and Community Services Act of New South Wales. I'm therefore presuming that a similar registration system will be required in Queensland. So we have a situation where a person wants to rent out space and therefore the logical extrapolation is, well, we just rent the rooms out as you would with normal people. However, because the particular market that's being looked at, they're not abnormal, but because they have special needs to be considered, then registration is required for this particular premises and particular contracts need to be adhered to. But the logical extrapolation is you wouldn't think, oh, well, you need any of that. But the rules of playing within the special disability space get changed. And therefore, you have to abide by those rules, not the general rules. And so it's the same as franchising. If you're going to be a franchisor or, or franchisee, got to understand the rules. As we said at the beginning, car dealerships are technically franchises within Australian law. And you therein, of course, lies the, the truth of this whole thing. We need to plan and we need to talk to somebody who actually understands the, the rules because for us lay people, <laughs> those rules can get a little bit overwhelming perhaps, but also we might understand the basics of it. But as you pointed out with... <laughs> with the football and the, the soccer. You know, lots of things are the same, but lots of things are different. And 
Why would we go to a lawyer? Well, for example, I have in front of me a list of academic articles and books written by one Stephen Brown, and I've got 15 in front of me, and I don't know that I've got them all. (laughs) And they cover a multitude of things. So this is why we go to lawyers. And uh, for anybody that didn't know, what's the best time to plant a tree? 30 years ago. What's the second best time? Now, if you're in business, and you haven't had a lawyer draw up all the appropriate documentation that, that you probably should have, go and see one. Mm-hmm. If you're thinking about getting into business and you think, oh, well, I'll talk to a lawyer later because they might cost money, let's not talk about what it costs if you don't pay them <laughs> and you don't have the right materials, go and see one now. Get it all sorted so that you know what you're stepping into. So what else should we be familiar with, Stephen, about franchising, whether we're franchisors or whether we're franchisees? Answer to that is the same answer you'd give any business person, which is by being in business, you're going to have employees. So you've got to have some knowledge of employment law because you're going to be employing people and terminating people. You're going to have to have some knowledge of workers' compensation because if you've got people employed, they're going to do stupid things and they're going to get injured. You're going to have to have some knowledge of insurance because you're also going to have people who are called customers who will come and trip on your floor. And so having public liability in especially a food outlet is crucial. You have to have an understanding of work, health and safety, not only for your employees, but also your customers. And that's where a good franchising system like with, again, McDonald's come back to, will have in their standard operating procedures how many times a floor must be cleaned. When are the coffee machines clean? When are the toilets clean? It, it goes down to those details. I even understand that you have to take outside temperature readings for McDonald's stores, and that data goes back to McDonald's. Then they analyse what people are eating with the wind conditions and the light conditions and the time, and then they factor that in. They run it through some formulas, then if they find that at a particular time with particular wind conditions and particular heat, more people are drinking cold drinks, that's when you'll have the server saying, would you want this with that? And, and so they get, they get big data. And it's all about supplying the, the information. You need to understand contracts. Your agreement with your fran- between the franchisor and franchisee is a contract. You need to have an appreciation in, in the franchising area of what the franchising code is. That you have benefits where if you have a dispute, you can force the franchisor to go to mediation without necessarily going to court. So knowing what you can and can't do, it doesn't mean you have to enforce it. But if you don't know what you can and can't do, you can't act as freely or with as much impact as you would otherwise. So knowing those those issues, probably don't need to know much about trademarks and too much about intellectual property whilst being a franchisee. You certainly do, though, if you're a franchisor. If you're a franchisee who is looking at wanting to have their own business later on, then their skills and knowledge that you would need to pick up. So it's all the skills that a business person would need, both franchisors and franchisees need, in addition to to doing their their day-to-day work. Not much at all. Just a couple of (laughs) (laughs) mouthfuls. Only about 20 years worth of experience to roll it off the tongue. 
Exactly. <laughs> and it's excellent information and well presented. Thank you, Stephen. And whilst this has been a wonderful conversation, and I know you and I can talk about this all day, we can't because the clock is against us. Before I let you go, however, what is the best tip you have received from a business conversation? The best tip that I've received is that when doing a presentation and trying to impart information, make it as entertaining as one can because information that's imparted in entertaining manner is often retained better than when people are switched off because your delivery is dry and boring. Excellent thing to pick up. And what is the top piece of advice you would like to leave listeners with today? All jokes aside on that one, I was going to say me, to come and see me, but seriously, I think talking to your advisors is crucial. You need your business coaches, such as yourself. You need your accountants and financial advisors. You also need the lawyers and you need to get them in sooner rather than later. You can use any lawyer that you're comfortable with but just bear the two, this following point in mind. If you go to an expert, you're going to be paying more money because they've got years of experience and they will cut to the chase and therefore they will charge you for the years that they've got the experience, but you'll get things done probably quicker and sooner. You can go to your family lawyer as well if you want to, but ensure that you pay them adequately to do the research. Because if they don't get off their bums and actually investigate it and they just say, oh, well, a contract's a contract and they don't actually find out there's a franchising code or they don't look at those particular aspects, like a lawyer may not, uh, this client you and I were talking about, they hadn't done any research about leases or border agreements in Queensland and what picadillos there are. And therefore, I wasn't aware of that. I was aware of New South Wales, but I had to do research. And that comes at a cost because it's got to be charged for. Lawyers, advisors, your time is like a taxi. If you've only got 24 hours in a day, you could therefore your time is capped. If you're not generally working 24 hours, so it's capped even less still. And if you're doing work that takes two hours and you're not charging for it, then you'll never get that time back again. So even research that your advisors do need to be paid for. And you've got to agree that just like you, you're as a business person want to be paid for the goods and services you provide, you've got to want to pay or be prepared to pay for your advisors. Because if you're not, your relationship is going to fall apart and you won't get the best service from them or get necessarily get the best advice. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. Most importantly, Stephen, before we let you go, how can our listeners get in contact with you to start their own business conversation? They can contact me by our website, which is www.etienlawyers.com.au. They can contact me on the office number of 0288452400 or email me at sbrown, no E, just S-B-R-O-W-N, at Etienne Law, which is E-T-I-E-N-E-L-A-W.com. EtienneLawyers.com. For the website. For the website. EtienneLaw.com for the email. And just once more, Etienne is E-T-I-E-N-E. 
N-N-E. It's a very pretty name, Stephen. It, it is a And doesn't necessarily associate pretty with, with lots of lawyers. No, no. There was a, a story behind it. When, when the firm was being set up with myself and a number of other people, we decided that years ago we just wanted one name to the firm because you'd have Colin Biggers and Paisley and the receptionist would always get tongue-tied. And then you have Alan Allen and Hemsley, which came to, to, you know, and within the profession, it was always Allen's or Collins. And we all knew that the first name would be the, the name. So we decided that we wanted a corporate image that wasn't associated with anyone in the group that was establishing it because we also had been in partners meetings where every year when new partners come on, they'd want to be Alan, Alan, Hemsley and Brown. And again, it was just becoming ridiculous. So if we wanted to choose this name and I was lecturing at the Institute of Company Directors and a particular student, I took a group out for drinks after the session had ended and this one particular student and I were talking and he was a Francophile and I was a Francophile and he sent me an email in French and Etienne is French, is old French for Stephen. And one of the guys who was setting Etienne lawyers up with me saw it at the firm that we were both working at at the time and asked me what the email was and I explained it. And he, he was the one who suggested, well, why don't we use Etienne? Because I wouldn't have done it because it did have an association with my, my name, but he thought it was good. We all thought it was good till we realised that no one can spell it. <laughs> It's all part of the planning, Stephen, isn't it? All part of the plan. Like once you've got it, you you, you remember it. But if, if you've only heard it once or twice, trying to find these people can be difficult because the spelling is a killer. <laughs> and I did notice, of course, that uh, your email is S Brown, not Stephen, because notwithstanding the Etienne, we might have misspelled Stephen anyway. That's possible. And it was also to keep it short and simple. Uh, we wanted less keystrokes. We want to encourage people to email. And so the fewer keystrokes there are, the better it is. There you go. This has been a wonderful conversation, Stephen. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. I look forward to hopefully post-COVID actually having one of these discussions face-to-face. That will be good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Business Conversations with Clive Ennevar. Make sure you subscribe to future episodes via your favourite podcast app and you can find more business resources at cliveenever.com.au.